0: But in 1997 we got our first PC. That was the gateway 2000. It uh, had a 166 megahertz processor, if that means anything to you. It came with eight, eight megabytes of RAM, which is practically nothing. later on we upgraded it to 16, doubling its capacity. And um, my parents spent for that computer, which this this device that I carry around with me has hundreds of times more computing power than that thing did. They, they paid somewhere between $11,000 and $12,000 for uh, it. This, this is 1997, so it's not all that long ago. My parents, um, I'm not entirely sure why they got it. I, I wouldn't mind asking them about it sometime, but uh, I think they got it for things like email, maybe word processing, but they were, they were always kind of sensitive to what was up and coming. And because of that, they, they bought a computer, because computers were up often becoming sorts of things. They saw it as a tool, as a learning thing that we could have as a family. We told them, I think we honestly saw it as something more like a toy. And there was that competition or tension that started to happen there, where we were trying to pull it in the direction of the toy, they were trying to pull it in the direction of production, and so we felt that, But there was my familiarity with computers. That's how I got started with them, and I found that I enjoyed them. I enjoyed working with them. I enjoyed getting into the guts of the machine, both at the physical level, opening it up and seeing how it worked, but also at that digital level, deep into the files that made this work. I found how you could break it. I found sometimes I could fix it. Now it's a I could get help with computers, and that, that caught my interest. I got more serious after uh, graduating from high school. And in 2005, I picked up a degree in computer science that was uh, an associate's degree. Um, I spent four years after that taking a job in Lebanon County, partly because of that study that I'd done. I got a job in Lebanon County about two and a half hours from home, and spent the next four and a half years as a, called a network administrator, kind of the person who Babies, the computers and the of the computers and help them out and keep things working together as much as you can. After those four years, I was actually kind of happy to make a move from the administrator of these machines, helping the people out with all of the problems that come with computers, to more of a computer user. And that's where I still am today. I spend a lot of my time using computers. Um, most of my working hours, like some of you all, are spent behind the screen, two of them, actually. And that's where I've spent a lot of my time now. So I, I, I can still get into the guts if I need to, but I try to hold that technical prowess a little bit closer because when people find out that they can fix problems with computers, they start asking, right? That's not, that's not where I'm, at. that's not my direction anymore. But still computers are part of my everyday work. So, that's just um, a little bit about me, a little bit of biography about my own background with computers. I'm going to, though, before I get into the topic tonight, just try to orient us a little bit to the situation that we're in with this information technology that, we mentioned, tends to ride around with us in our pockets. I'm going to lay like just a little bit of direction for us by using single word. And and that word is revolution. It's revolution. Some some people, when we talk about technology, they say that we're living through a revolution. That's the digital or the information revolution. But what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that we're living through a revolution? Well might draw back on history a little bit and talk about the French Revolution. It's a different kind of revolution, but it is nonetheless a revolution. What happens there? Well, if you go back to the French Revolution, this is roughly 10 year period in France that changed Europe forever, and it has a lot of effect in America, too. What happened during the French Revolution was this land that freed from old systems of that system that controlled the land and you had access to it was entirely destroyed. There's, there's changes of the economy that come with that when we change how land ownership works. The king, well, he was unseated, and the citizens rose up and they claimed their voice, they claimed authority over and above the king. So there's changes of government that are happening, there's changes of authority that come along with that. The Catholic Church was which well, I mean, a lot of authority in France is driven out. And there's mass killing towards this time of clergy. There's leading. There's auctioning of church property. And it changes of religious life as well. So there's changes of the economy, of authority, of religious life. You, you could say, to kind of pull it together here, that the, the royal and Catholic heads, well, they were rolling. And they were, literally. There's old ways of thinking of life, of business, of religion, of government, of authority. They're, they're all being torn down. And new ways of doing all of these things are being built back up. Revolutions, like the French Revolution, are unsettling times. They're chaotic. They're uncertain. They don't know exactly where things are going to come out at the end. They're disruptive. So we are, today say we're living through a revolution. And this is the digital or the information revolution. And the change of revolutions like this the French Revolution for up to 10 years, that's fast-moving for all of the changes that happened during the time. The pace of this revolution that we're living through now is no less disruptive or staggering. We've witnessed in our lifetime many transitions we've seen changes in the economy. The rise of technology giants like IBM, Amazon, Alphabet, we probably know as Google. There's Apple, which um, in 2008 became the world's first company worth $1 trillion, the 2018 one. So 2018, first company in the world worth $1 trillion. Now, I checked in on this just a couple of weeks ago, preparing for these talks, and realized that was 2018. Okay, just a couple of months ago in 2020, there was a bit of a surge in the worth of Apple, and they peaked out over two trillion dollars in worth. So, from one trillion to two trillion in two years, and they're still leading the way as far as the largest company in the, wor- in the world, as far as like their value. There's other companies like Facebook, Spotify, and Twitter, some of these names that are familiar, and these are all talking about the transitions that are, these are companies, many of them, which didn't exist even 30 years ago. In uh, the assembly line, or the kind of work that we do, there's been vast transitions where we've moved from the assembly line first to the screen, where most Americans now, kind of like me, most Americans now spend most of their working hours in front of a screen of some stuff. it seems hardly existed than 30 years ago. We traded in the landline for the cell phone, and then after we were done with our cell phones, smartphones came along and we find ourselves not just reaching for these things when we're getting phone calls but reaching for them, and reaching for them, and reaching for them over and over and over again, just because of how capable these little devices are. This began in 2007, the smartphone revolution, with the iPhone, and that's a mere 13 years ago, which really is a blink of the eye when you think in the long term of things. It's a little hard to make comparisons, but it would have taken several rooms of those Gateway 2000 computers that my parents purchased back in 2007, or sorry, 1997, it would uh, take several roomfuls of those to do what this lowly device, which is wearing itself out now, can do now. And all of that for well less than a quarter of the price of what my parents say back in 97 in a package that weighs less than 100 pounds. This is the case of things these days. with that, we've witnessed great achievements in healthcare, the sciences, agriculture, communication, and manufacturing. Some people have taken on themselves the mission of providing global access for most or all of the world's population, and we want to get them online. Some people are elated with all of these changes. There's the prophets of post-humanism that anticipate the merging together of man and machine into something new. Some kind of God-like being always on, always connected and hyper or supremely aware. Some people are thrilled and yet there's rumors of things like digital dementia. the severing the cutting apart of cause and effect. There's distraction that seems to be on the rise. There's addiction. There's teenage depression. There's adult negligence. There's derailed childhood. Some people fear that we've forgotten our bodies, that we've cut ourselves off, from the people that are immediately around us, while strangely enough, feeling connected in different ways, we've lost our literacy, we fed our craving for approval, and it's easier and more comfortable to nurse those secret devices that are oh so easy to allow us to slip our lives. We're hyper-connected, some say, and paradoxically lonely, we have unimaginable volumes of information constantly out of are strangely confused, some are greatly concerned about this information revolution. So these conversations, these discussions, the trouble that technology calls for, this has always been with us, that books were controversial, but there is an urgency to these conversations. There's a strona to some of them that I think calls us to pay attention. Something about our time is calling for us to sit out and pay attention and to take action. And this is a difficult thing to do in a revolution. This information revolution we're living through, like other revolutions, has brought chaos, it's brought uncertainty, it's brought destruction to our lives. There are old ways of thinking and living which are being torn down and new ones being built up was a thought-provoking article in the National Geographic one or two years ago that I think summarizes our situation pretty well. We may not know yet where we're going, but we've already left where we've been. We may not know where we're going in this revolution, but we've already left where we've been. What do we do in the middle of all this? How do we respond? We can recoil in fear, we can lapse, maybe in paralysis, and it's easy enough to do. Or, I suggest that we can trace the arc of God's work with his creation. It's always there, he's always present with his people, he's helping them to discern, he's helping them to embrace where appropriate, and he's helping them to reject where they need to. So we can take it for granted, we can take it for granted, that the spirit, God's spirit, the same one that brooded over creation in the opening book, or the opening pages of scripture, that same spirit that brooded over the first creation, grew also over these times, revolutionary, though they feel sometimes. And where we see chaos, where we see confusion, where we see uncertainty, this potential for order, for meaning, for confidence, and for life. That is, really quickly, that's just to get us oriented here, where we're going. These are the times we live Okay? They're moving quickly. It's easy to be startled by them. For myself, I've gotten to see some transitions that, say, the younger folks here, they, they, they see they were just natives. They were born into this revolution keeps on happening for some of your folks. You have witnessed some incredible things. Okay, let's not forget where we are. I have basically three talks to give. The first one's tonight about seeing and hearing, and all of these are related to seeing and hearing. So tonight, how the technology, how the information technology we have, how it's changing how we see and how we hear. And I'm saying to be skills that we're going to have to learn in this age, like in other ages. Tomorrow morning, we'll talk about character, skills, and identity, and we end tomorrow afternoon with action, which I'm hoping is going to be the most practical of these messages. We start off here in the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to turn there, I'll be at least getting in a little bit. starting here in the first chapter of Revelation. And you can look, I'm supposing you're familiar with it, so I'm not, uh, I'm not going to spend enormous amount of time developing. Go. Look at chapters 1 to 3, and just what's going on here. This letter of Revelation, it's, it's, it's a letter written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. You, you know this. If you look at a map... But what's happening as John addresses these churches, he, he works his way roughly clockwise around the park or semi of churches. He starts out with Ephesus the Smyrna, and addresses Smyrna, then Pergamum to the north, and then northeast, back down to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And, and this is the bulk of what happens here in the first three chapters. It's just he addresses to these churches, and he's working his way kind of clockwise around on the map if you look at it, and direction each of them. And, and the point of his address, the thrust of what John wants to say to these churches is to reveal Jesus, as he says in um, 1 verse 4. He wants to reveal the one who is, and who was and who is to become. He wants to show them Jesus. He wants to show them the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion for and ever and ever. This is something of what John wants to show, king, wants. He addresses each of these churches individually. He has a message for them. And after each of the short messages in the books, I'm sorry, chapters 2 and 3, he, he wraps it up the same way. He always says to them, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You heard that, right? He wants us to hear. And the reason he wants us to hear, the reason he has seems to say, is that even though everyone in some way hears, not everyone hears. <laughs> in some sense, we hear. We have, we all have the instrument of hearing, but not all of us hear. What's going on here? The reason he says this, the reason John says this is that even though we're all hearing things, there's actually a lot of noise. <laughs> we always hear the noise. And in, in, in John's world, like our world, there was a lot of noise. There was a lot of things being said. There's a lot of things to hear. Here is John, who's the disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned on Jesus as a close friend. And now he's on Patmos. Small rocky island, and he's an exile. He's been jerked away from the communities he loves and he cared for. Hearing Jesus and instructing people in this work of hearing Jesus isn't something that would have just come automatic for him. He had good reason to be troubled. When you read the Gospels, and when you read the Gospel and the discourses the letters that he's written to some of these churches, he realized that things haven't just been easy for him. There's been outside pressure as the Jews pushed these believers in these communities that he cared for out from among them. They were rejected. But there's pressure from the government as well. The Romans aren't really that comfortable with groups that claim that the God that they follow is the ruler of kings on earth, which is what Revelation thinks about him. There's pressure, and there's even some violence from the government by the time that John writes this. And he knows that this is only going to get worse. He add to that the outside pressure from the Jews, rejection from them and from the Romans. He add to that the internal pressure. We've seen these groups and communities that John cares about who said things like they were without sin, who did not walk in the light, who did not love one another, who listened indiscriminately to every spirit or word that came among them, and who refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. These were difficult times. These were unsettling times. These were chaotic times. These were times for the churches when it wasn't exactly clear where this all was going to go. Christ had said that he would build his church. But about 40 years or so after his death, when this letter was written, it wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious how that was going to happen. It was a noisy environment. There was a lot of pressure. There was stress. Things were disrupted, it was noisy, there were problems, all kinds of things were being thrust on these people. And it took Spirit-led practice to be able to hear. It took practice to hear, and this is something that the Spirit gave these people. He taught them to hear. So God tells us, well, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This hearing and seeing, it's, it's a seeing of uh, these revelation here. If you want to keep your finger on it, that's fine. But I'm going to back up a little bit. This seeing of uh, seeing and hearing, it's a significant one in Scripture. Jesus responds in Matthew 13 to his disciples when they do an exception about why he speaks in parables. Well, why did he just speak plainly? Asked, well, why, why are you being so appreciative about us? Speak, and he responds, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Those seeing, they do not see. Those hearing, they do not understand. And then this fulfilled the prophecy of said, you be ever hearing, but do not understand. You will be ever seen, but never perceiving. Eventually, whose prophetic career was set in the midst of a rebellious people. He says of them, they have eyes to see, what they do not see, and ears, but they do not hear. It's just because we have the instrument of seeing and hearing, just because we have the physical instrument of eyes and ears, well, that doesn't mean that there's perception. It doesn't automatically mean that there's perception. And this is true of Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. It's hard times that they were caught in. It's true of John and the communities he's writing of. And I suggest that it's true of our times, just as well as it is theirs. We do can have the instrument. We can have, have the instrument of seeing. We can have the instrument of hearing. But hearing and seeing, like John is asking for us, that kind of hearing and seeing, well, this is the kind. it takes practice. It takes practice. There's these old school mechanics that I admire and I'm afraid as things move in the direction of technology, we're losing touch with them. And they can take a screwdriver, and a have do it, if you have an engine that's running a little bit rough, so all they need is a screwdriver. They can take that, they can put it up against the side of the running engine, and they can just put their head up against it, and feel the vibrations as much too small as they do through your ear. They can move from cylinder to cylinder to cylinder on that engine. Well, that one's okay. That one's okay. Oh, this one. This is the one that's not firing, right? And then they know where to get their attention and where they can actually begin diagnosis. Now, I-, I can do that as well. I can put that through uh, my head. I can put it against the engine. All I hear is the voice. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff going around and whirring. Flattering and making this once voice inside of an instrument, that's just a of noise. So I, I can have an instrument there, and I can even hear in some ways the same things hearing, but I'm not hearing the same way. It doesn't mean a lot to me. I hear, but I'm not hearing the sort of hearing I need to address, and so the sort of hearing that I need to really perceive takes practice. We need to learn to listen, we need to learn to see what it is that the Lord has for us. And it's going to make two applications for the information age that we live in. The first application is about the kind of information we consume and how we digest it. See, part of living in the information age having access to nearly unlimited content to see and to hear. But more content doesn't automatically mean that we can make better decisions, that we can actually perceive. More content doesn't automatically mean that we're actually hearing, that we're actually seeing. Are the practical? You may have noticed we're lecture here. And also, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's a lot to see. (laughs) There's a lot to hear. There's a lot of voices to take in, a lot of information to access. I had a look at the headlines of three websites some weeks ago just to get a sense of what's being said, what's being shown for us to see the names, if you can't kind of just read the headlines, you could probably identify with this it's coming from. But on CNN, um, there was reporting on the death of Justice Bruce Bader Ginsburg. There was a title headl- headline titled, Mitt Romney should take his own advice. Another headline, Mike Tyson hasn't voted. If sure he will, As what he's voting for. Or, Trump minimizes the pandemic and again mocked Biden for wearing a mask. Rick Astley listens in on Weatherman's hilarious blooper. Here's Anderson Cooper. Are elderly people now disposable? Look in the mirror, Trump. These are all headlines that I saw here on CNN. All oh, this is the to go on the Fox. Senate committee's release report on Hunter Biden's summit, candidate Joe Biden's complex financial transactions with the training firm. Another headline. Convicted pink activist. Hired to help reform police at $150,000 salary. Or, Trump urges world leaders to hold kind China of accountable for coronavirus. Okay. How about the sidebar of videos I saw hanging on the left side of the slide. Representative Tim Jordan on photos. Then want to change the rules because they're not winning. Or, Juan Williams reacts to protests against police brutality, taking more confrontational approach. Okay, these are two kind of prominent newspapers. You can survey the media. Maybe you want to do this sometime. Survey it just by reading the headlines. You okay. can resist the hits that's trying to pull you in, Those headlights headlines are written in a way to try to pull you. Into. Just read the headlines. Somewhere. What do you see? What do you hear? One thing I noticed, and that I've got to point out, is that there's always a skin. okay? There's always a skin. There's always a narrative. And, and just by looking at the headlines, you can probably begin to discern what that skin is going to be like. What's the narrative that's holding us all together? And I can't just give you the facts. And more and more, that thin, that narrative, is sensationalized. I mean here that more and more things are spun. Certain ways, it's fun harder to make them look bigger than what they actually are. Why is that? Practically, that's one way to get views. That's one way to get people to follow a certain website. That's what's getting people to make the clicks. This is what drives this content-oriented world forward. The people who get the clicks earn the audience and receive financial rewards for that. This is the business. And the more clicks you get, the better you're going to do financially. It's kind of that always. We haven't even dipped into the world of blogs. Blogs, which are these video blogs you can post on places like YouTube. Podcasts, and more podcasts. These are all ways that information technology has given People of all sorts, whether they're qualified or unqualified, aged and wise or young, you get the adjectives there, uh, whatever they are, everybody now has a platform to be heard. These can be self designated influences. Sometimes we have to admit, do you have a big influence? Sometimes these people even say the influencers, they, they put pressure on the big media names in a way that uh, has continued to ramp up this sensationalizing machine that's trying very hard to gain an audience. It's, it's a tough time to be in big media right now. The one who gets the most views, the most listening, the most reading wins. Because of that, we're in this game of continual one-upmanship. Now, get the point here, and that's this: we have access these days to an unbelievable volume of content. It's unprecedented. Unbelievable content available to us. We have so much to see. We have so much to hear. And the more fragmented our world becomes it seems like it's becoming more and more fragmented, the more variety of content we're going to have. And the more we incorporate technology into our lives, the more access we have to all of this content. This is a noisy environment. It's extremely noisy. There are all kinds of problems in today's world, all kinds of claims being made about these problems, it takes spirit-fired practice to actually hear, to actually see. So we're told, he who has ears to hear, he who has eyes to see, let him hear. Let him see. How do we do this? I'll suggest two activities. Learning to stop listening and looking at what doesn't matter. And you're learning to look and listen at what does. And I'll be drawing here from, from a passage in Isaiah that um, came across some months ago that's, that's been significant here. It's Isaiah 33, uh, verses 13 to 16, if you'd like to follow, i read them. Isaiah 33, to 16. And they read like this Isaiah: writes, "Here you are, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling, as he The godless <laughs> read the news. Do you see that sometimes trembling deceives to godless? Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings?" He said, "He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the scheme of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears, and stops his ears, rather, from hearing a bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights, his place of defense will be the fortress of His bread will be given him, His water will be short. And here we have it. Violence, unrighteousness, sickness, bloodshed, and evil. And these have always been with us. Now it's constantly with us. When we have these devices with us, when we have news media constantly working the cycles of bloodshed and sickness and evil, it's going to be with us. We have... Access to this all the time. And through this, it's what's best. It's what's best. Fear and evil spells. It spells quickly. Evil is shocking. It gets our attention. Fear and trembling, however, they belong to the godless. An obsession with fear and trembling, I suggest. Moves us toward godlessness. Notice here too what the righteous are like. They're not brought into far from concerns and fears. You might even say that what they give themselves to, what they're concerned with here, is what's right around them. They despise the demon of oppressors. They seek to hands free of bribes. These are things that People can actually do. Right? These are things that we can actually take on ourselves, to commit ourselves to, make commit commitments about bribery, about oppression, about the evil that's happening in other places of the world, as significant as it can be. It's a little hard to make commitments, but really something I need. I think it's something we can actually do, commit ourselves to. These people, the rightists, they also know they're These are the people who can stop their ears from hearing the bloodshed and stop their eyes from looking on evil. They know that there's limits to how much of this stuff that we can actually take. They know the way that evil, the bloodshed, the violence, the sickness, they can pull us away and deplete us, and that we do tend to obsess about them. The solution that is offered here is pretty blunt. We have our limits, so stop looking. Stop looking, he says. For us, move that smartphone away from your bed. Get it away from the bed, because it's going to give you constant access to this. Be conscious of how much time you spend looking at the news at work. These are not neutral things. What will come of the kind of person who knows what his limits are, who knows when to stop looking, to stop listening? No. he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks. His bread will be given, him, his water will be stored So that is <laughs> the first application. You know when to stop. No one to stop, no one to put it away, because we have access to incredible amounts of content. And it tends to focus on the evil and the depleting. A a second way that I'll suggest we need to learn to see and to hear, and and, and this is where information technology has changed significantly. The way we try to do this is in connection with others, in relationship. And I'm going to suggest to you that we need to learn to see and to hear in ways that address the concerns address the challenges that technology has brought to us. So to, to have connection with others, to have the kinds of bonds that we need to make living life worthwhile, because if we don't have any worthwhile bonds with people, life will not be worth living. We need bonds with each other. To have those bonds, we need to be able to see and hear from other people. It seems kind of basic, but bit it gets complicated. It's not really that, first of all, we need to have a, at least, somewhat more or less secure sense of who we are as people. And we have to have a somewhat more or less sense of that there's somebody outside of us that's different than us that we can actually hear from. You see how that works. We have to something of a sense of who we are. It has to be at least more or less days up days or days days, right? But we have to have a sense of who we are and we have to have a sense that there's somebody out there that's different than we are. And this is what makes bonding with people actually possible. Technology has changed this. But the, the, the basic principles, like having a sense of who we are and having a sense of someone out there, these remain the same. How does this all work out? I'm going to target Facebook, just because it's within reach. Um, But I think the same things apply to pretty much anything or any other platform of social media that we have. Facebook tells us to advertise that we can use their platform to again, for you, we can use their software to connect with friends, family, and other people that you know. Share photos and video. Send messages and get updates. So we create an account. You post things. Your friends post things. Facebook posts things. And you get to see some of what your friends post and you get to see and they get to see some of what you post as well. And it it, it can be kind of neat. But there's other things going on. There's other things going on. What Facebook is doing is that it's it's sorting things for us. It's sorting what we see. It's sorting what we read and what we hear for two basic effects. And those effects are, I suggest, for one, gratification, and the second effect is marketability. What do I mean by gratification? Well, you remember that an important part here of what it means for us to have the kind of bond that we need to make life living to make living life worthwhile. One of the things that we have to have is sense that people are different than us. This means that sometimes they think differently than we do. This means that sometimes they hurt our feelings. And I don't know how you are experience this, but I found that the more intimate the relationship is, and the more intimate the bond is going to be potentially, the more likely it is that at some point along the way we're going to be hurt. Okay? We're going to be hurt if that bond is actually going to be an intimate one. And being hurt doesn't feel good. But well, Facebook tends to prioritize is the sort of content that you like. That's how it runs. The more you reach for that like button, the more it's going to give you that sort of content. The more of that kind of content it's going to show you. It, as a piece of software, wants to please you. It wants to engage you. It wants to make you feel good, because we tend to go after the sorts of things that make us feel good. So there might be a kind of connection happening on Facebook like they advertise, but it's hard to find the kind of connection on Facebook or other platforms like it that move past just gratification. And if it feels that kind gratification, it's kind of hard to reconcile with, with the kind of Christian connection that can happen around things like the cross. Right? The most secure bonds we can wish for—Christian bonds that are made for brothers and sisters in christ is the kind that tends to happen in the shadow of the cross. And crosses don't always feel good, right? Crosses don't feel good. They're not meant for our gratification. They're there for our mortification. So the second way that Facebook tends to prioritize content, or again, pretty much any platform like it, is marketability. It's going to give you content that's marketable. Facebook, just like any other social media platform, is a business. And these are big businesses. And it's a business in which we, signing on and creating our account and beginning to share information, and content and videos and things that we put on these things, it's a business in which we are the product. We are the product. And we're the product here because when businesses know our personal habits, they can build up a very precise profile of who we are, And they can advertise to us products, which they think will, again, gratify us. Also, they can take this data and they can give it to paying clients, so that the paying clients can have better access to things which will, again, gratify us. We're the the product because the more engaged that we get with the software called things of Facebook, the more engaged we get, the more empowered Facebook is and the more empowered their clients are in swaying our opinion in one direction or another. So now we have countries like China and Russia capitalizing on the massive influence that Facebook actually has. Who so at least things like elections in their favor. And that's to say nothing, of course, of how the United States might be returning a favor, but we don't hear quite as much I'm targeting, again, Facebook here, just because it's convenient. But the bottom line is that there is no free lunch for us as digital people, as we begin to engage these platforms of social media. There is no free lunch. Facebook offers us a place to connect. But what we're really seeing, what we so often hear, is some kind of path-based gratification there's this swirl streets of market criers and these banners that are popping up also oh so constantly. And there's an occasional sideshow of actual connection. We have to do better than this. We have to do better than this. At least, if you want to have a life in which these bonds, which happen under the shadow of the cross, are possible, we're going to have to do better. Well, we could do much worse. Again, to have the kinds of bonds that we need to have to make life worthwhile, we have to see, we have to hear from other people. And I'll be candid here, Um, I'll be frank, the deepest way we experience this is in our sexuality. This is what makes pornography so destructive and so addictive. It offers to satisfy this longing that we all have for relationship, for seeing and hearing. This longing we actually have to enjoy something that is different in us, another person. But in the pornographic, we get to do that on our own terms. We get to distort something that's intended as only as just another means for our gratification. And it's available here on our fingertips. This is challenge. This is jealous. And it's uh, now as convenient as this. And that's the means of our gratification that's even further removed, I'm suggesting, from the kind of relationship we need to actually see and hear in relationship. I could wrap up. Hmm. Our, our relationships, I said, are one of the primary ways that we reveal and have revealed to us Jesus Christ. And, and it takes a lot of work sometimes to reveal Jesus Christ to them. I understand that, and it can take just of much work to see and have revealed to us Jesus Christ in the relationships we have with other people. It takes practice to see. And to hear Jesus Christ as we relate to others. It takes practice to see and to hear Jesus Christ and the difficult and the chaotic, the stressful things that are going on in our world, and these things will continue to go on. For technology, for all the promises that it makes is never a substitute for the kinds of encounters that happen to us in person. It's never a substitute for the kinds of bonds that got past the superficial bonds of gratification. It is a handy, sometimes, but maybe over-advertised tool. But it's a very poor master. At its best, it can be an aid in seeing and hearing. It can be an aid to the strong bonds that we already have. At its worst, Completely anesthetizes us and walls to sleep and draws us away from the kind of connection that we actually need. At its worst, it faster us with all kinds of distress, of chaos, of fear, and uncertainty now, doubt, which are a very real part of our world, but like I said, these things we hope belong to the God of us. and not to us. So, let's pray and I'd like to have a couple of concluding words to back to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, when you were among us, you saw and you heard as the Father intended for you too. We have so much to learn from you. You've given us and we give them our and we enjoy them. They're a gift themselves. But uh, we, we recognize the need in this day to learn to see and to really hear. I commit to uh, the challenge that technology presents to you. is so much to see, so many possibilities. And in our know, relationships and the kind of content that we consume. I pray that um, you'll help us to really understand and perceive as you have us We commit ourselves to you, We give our lives to you as the sacrifices that they are, and uh, we want you to know that we love you through Christ.